This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Weekend Podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. In this week's broadcast, we take a look at a new book about the rise of Sergio Marchionne and how he transformed Fiat Chrysler, plus how Gen Z is shaping how business is done around the world. It's this week's cover story. First up, Accusations of harassment and discrimination could blow open the closed doors of arbitration on Wall Street. For details, I spoke to reporters Max Abelson and Katya Porzikansky. And Katya, let's start with you. What happened in August of 2016? Well, Lee Stoll, who's a managing director at Cantor Fitzgerald in their Summit, New Jersey office. She's a high-yield bond saleswoman at Cantor and has been for 25 years. Really successful, right? Very successful. She discovered uh, that her mug that her children had given her for Mother's Day was missing. She went looking for it, and inside she says she found feces in it, which is one of many things that happened to Lee on the trading floor at Cantor Fitzgerald. Um, And she is now suing the firm over harassment, discrimination, retaliation, and we covered it. You guys spent a lot of time with her. Tell us about her, because this is a woman um, who really worked her way up in the financial industry. Yeah. Which isn't always so easy for women, as we know. Not always so easy. You know, as Wall Street reporters, we, we, you know, we, we talk to people, traders or bankers, and sometimes they're sort of like, you know, elegant and reserved and very proper, and sometimes, you know, they're loose. And I have to say, Lee, you know, I hope she comes across in the story the way she comes across in real life, because she is like, a, I think as she might say, like a tough cookie. You know, she basically learned to survive on Wall Street by like dishing out whatever she took. Right. So, you know, part of Cantor Fitzgerald's defense in her And they are pushing back. You better believe it. They're denying her claims. Uh, you know, a person familiar with Cantor's thinking basically says, you know, Lee Stoll instigated, you know, bad behavior or at least participated in it. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where normally in court, two different sides get to present their story. But one thing that Katya and I wrote about in this story is that Wall Street has used arbitration to basically, you know, make sure people don't even get to tell their stories. And we have talked about this before, right? And this is not just Wall Street, but a lot of corporate America uses arbitration, mandatory arbitration if there's a dispute between an employee and an employer. Exactly. So someone like Lee, because she is a stock bond broker, essentially, a lot of what happens in Wall Street, they just shuttle off to uh, FINRA arbitration or other forms of arbitration. It never comes out in the headlines, To deal with right? dispute. I mean, or not it could that. at the beginning and then eventually settles down once it's put there. Right now, she's fighting to keep it in court as opposed to going to arbitration. And a lot of this issue comes from why are harassment cases being disputed in arbitration? They have very little to do with the day-to-day of being a broker, right? So, or they might have little to do with the day-to-day of being a broker. And And, so that's what she's fighting right now. And we kicked off telling about kind of what seemed to be one of the most egregious things or just like, wait, what, in terms of the mug, her mug. But I mean, there were a series of like harassment charges that she has made, right? To the point that she was ultimately, when she complained, she was fired or let go, right? Well, it's, there was, she was let go a few months after the complaints started as okay. part of a as part of layoffs. And the thing is that people familiar with Canner, people who have traded at Canner, know that there is an environment there where if you speak up, you're probably and especially if you speak up against a moneymaker, which is what her boss, who her boss really is for Canner, right? You might see a form of retaliation down the line, and that is what she's saying happened to her. Right. Cantor also denies the retaliation claims, but one thing that was interesting for me and Katya as we were reporting on the story is we first met Lee, and you know the truth of the matter is women on Wall Street and women in corporate America. Over the past few years, you know, our, the arbitration system has sucked up their complaints. You know, it's sort of like a black hole. 
But one thing that happened while we were working on the story is that a judge came down with the decision and sided with her. So not to give away the story, but, you know, you could say that this is a story that's really not only is it about harassment, but it's also about the fight to tell her story in court. And so far, Lee Stoll is winning it. And one of the important things about being able to fight in court is that you can find other people who relate to you. Right. And one of the reasons that me, that Me Too movement hasn't really hit Wall Street is, as Max has reported a lot on, Wall Street is one of the biggest leaders of arbitration. Most people on Wall Street are tied up to deal with their issues in arbitration. And it's very rare that you see people be able to fight out in court something, an issue that happened in Wall Street. When women are not able to learn about each other, mm-hmm. are not able to confront a company that you might have a systemic issue here right. and all these things are just that me too idea in, that handled in secrecy right these things just get handled case by case and no one can ever fight it together and this is what's interesting that kind of jumped out for me from your story is lee wants to do it for herself but she also wants to do it really for the bigger broader public and women on wall street in general correct a hundred percent that's her that's her motivation so where are we right because she hasn't yet gotten her day in court no, she uh, she won that decision, but uh, Kendra Fitzgerald is appealing. And look, you know, one thing that just occurred to me as I was listening to Katya talk is that, you know, women can end up in arbitration, and sometimes some women want to be in arbitration. Women can end up in court, although that's harder. Another thing that people can do, though, women and men, is tell their story to reporters. And, you know, Katya and I, you know, we're, uh, our phones are open. But that's assuming that they're not bound by an NDA and right. a disclosure agreement. And that's what's also really prevalent on Wall Street. And so a lot of women are bound by NDAs, and that's what's keeping them from talking, because they have so much at stake. These settlements agreements are structured, and right. they're a lot of money, and why would you give it up? That's Katya Porzikansky and Max Abelson. It was July of last year that we got news of the death of one of the most revered auto executives in history. We're talking about Sergio Marchionne. Tommaso Ebhart knew him well, talked with him, and interviewed him often. Tommaso is Bloomberg News Milan bureau chief. He's written a new book about Marchionne, and an excerpt is in this week's remarks. Tommaso joins us from Milan. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with him. You knew him for about, what, a decade? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very linked uh, to Bloomberg, my relationship with Marchionne, because essentially 10 years ago, I was assigned as a rookie printer reporter. I used to be an anchor for the Italian uh, TV channel of Bloomberg, then I moved to print. And at a certain point, I was assigned to cover Fiat uh, as Marchionne was trying to buy Chrysler. And so I s- essentially started to pester Marchionne uh, initially in Europe, but then all over the globe. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I used used to uh, take planes early in the morning to find where he was on Google and just uh, uh, go there and you know and he, he started to find me everywhere and so at the end uh, he, he used to call me his affectionate stalker as he <laughs> said live on Bloomberg TV when we were at the New York Stock Exchange for Ferrari IPO with Matt Miller and and so over the years you know this uh, professional relationship some, somehow became also a close personal relationship as I tell in my book, uh, the book is it's about Marchione, but also it's a, it's also about the story of a reporter who passed Marchione. You know, at, at a certain time, he also offered me a job, and <laughs> and I refused and said, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm not, not going to come to work with you. And and, and since that offer, uh, you know, our relationship became even even closer. So I were I was a sort of sparring partner for him, and uh, for the last uh, couple of years, and then I was so lucky that you know he gave me real access uh, and even his last uh, interviews I did his last uh, 
proper sit down interview he uh, offered me uh, invited me for dinner uh, the night before his last Detroit auto show at his place in Michigan it was very intimate uh, dinner just with him uh, his uh, uh, partner and the head of communication at fiat and 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 i did an interview which went on the record uh, even if the head of communication was not very happy at the moment because he <laughs> was the night before he was holding a press conference and this is his last interview and I call it a sort of confession because he, he gave me really his overview of the future of the auto industry of his future at the time I found it very somehow he was very emotional I didn't know he was sick he knew he was a sick at that time I did and no one did as we uh, as I discovered in, in for the book essentially uh, Marchione left everyone outside is in his uh, relatives in the dark no one at Fiat Chrysler knew he was uh, uh, sick and no one knew he was going to the hospital right. uh, for a surgery and so this was a real shock also for people very close uh, to Marchione for years. Well, let's go there because the excerpt specifically talks about the Fiat Chrysler chairman, um, John uh, Elkan, yeah. and he too didn't know that he was so sick. Yeah, I mean, Elkan and Marchione, they uh, used to work together for you know about 14 years. When they started, Elkan was uh, in his uh, uh, early 30s and, and, and Marchione came, uh, uh, actually he was not even 30, and Marchione came to save uh, Fiat. They had a very close uh, professional and even personal relationship, but even Elkan didn't know anything. Uh, he didn't know that Marchione was going to have a surgery and he, he didn't get any update on his uh, condition for days for weeks actually and three days before he discovered was go what was really going on he went to the hospital in Zurich he was not allowed to get into the intensive care unit he didn't get any information because uh, Marchione wanted uh, uh, privacy and didn't want to, to give any information essentially to anyone and then he, he, he went back three days later when speculation were mounting on you know his condition it was five days before the second quarter call he wanted to know what's going on and when he when he walked into the hospital he met uh, Sergio's uh, partner he understood immediately that Marchione was never going to come back that this condition right. went irreversible so that yeah so well, yeah this is uh, the, the, the some, somehow the inside story right and you think about that for the chairman there was a personal story right this is somebody he had known for so long and had a personal relationship but at the same time he was yeah. chairman of Fiat Chrysler and he had to think about the responsibility to the company and to uh, investors to shareholders because, you know, as you know better than anyone, Sergio Marchione was an incredible auto executive and he was, as you write in this excerpt and in your book, you know, he was on the phone constantly. He was on WhatsApp messaging people constantly. Yeah. constantly. He was involved in so many decisions. You say he was involved in Super Bowl commercials, signing off on it, on designs for vehicles. Uh, he was so involved in almost you know any detail that was critical to the company yeah no no absolutely and and as i tell in my book uh, this was one of the reasons why i personally started to feel uh you know worry about his health condition because he he, he suddenly was offline and this mm -hmm. was not normal for him because marchione was always online he was obsessed about his job he was working more than you know more than 15 hours a day and and then he suddenly disappeared so there was the risk uh, that the company was coming to a standstill 
So when John Elkin discovered the situation, he had 24 hours to come with successor for Marchion at Fiat, at Ferrari, at CNH Industrial. Those three companies that when Marchion joined were the old Fiat. If you, there are two numbers that I used to mention in my stories and that Marchion actually appreciated at the time. When Marchion arrived, Fiat was almost bankrupt, was worth about $6 billion. When he left, 14, hour, 14 years later, Fiat plus Ferrari plus CNH Industria were worth about 80 billion dollars. So this is what Marchione uh, did in 14 years, essentially in terms of extraction of value. Right. It's incredible, the value. And he really wanted to push it to 100 billion, as you note uh, in your book. There yeah. were, though, uh, as you point out, a couple of what ifs if Sergio Marchione was still yeah. alive. There were some things he was hoping to do, some M&A. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, there is one big regret in Marchione's uh, career he really wanted to combine with General Motors and to form the world's biggest car maker because he thought and he, he wrote this in his uh, Capital Junkie confession that the synergy was so huge you could not live without it essentially uh, he tried everything he sent three letters to the board of GM he courted activist investors to get an help and what I write in my book he also was considering an hostile cash bid for about 60 billion dollars he had a sort of backing from banks he told me he had a letter from European banks ready to support an hostile bid he never took this decision he never actually proposed the board decision why because conditions were not there as Elkan found out first uh, the U US establishment was against uh, this option mm -hmm. That's Tommaso Ebhardt. Remember when you were a kid and you were told not to eat dirt? Well, maybe that was bad advice, as we are learning that all bacteria are not bad. Some may even be good, which brings us to one of the feature stories this week in the magazine. Carolina Winter joining us from Boston with more. I feel like there's no other way to start off this story, Carolina. It's one of my favorites this week. Tell us about David Whitlock, who he is and what he's been up to. So David Whitlock is a fascinating man. He is an inventor, a chemical engineer by training, and uh, previously worked on all sorts of different projects, um, but became fascinated by the idea of good bacteria around 2000, um, and specifically the idea that we need bacteria to be healthy. Specifically, he does something called, what is it, AOB, ammonia oxidizing bacteria. Exactly. So he, um, around that time, he went on a date and the woman he um, was on the date with asked him why horses like rolling in the dirt in the springtime before the insects start biting. And um, he was fascinated by this, this question and started looking into it and um, came upon these, uh, these bacteria. They're called ammonia oxidizing bacteria or AOBs. And they take the ammonia in your sweat and they transform it into nitrite, which is anti-infective, and nitric oxide, which is a molecule that's good for all sorts of um, uh, health, health effects. Right, anti-inflammatory. So you think about you know the potential for what it might be used in ultimately. Tell us though about what he did. He had a job. Did he kind of quit that job and then he moved into his car? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what he was doing. Yeah. Okay. So so he had a job. He had actually sold a previous company. So he had some money, but he took that about half a million dollars and 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 used it all 
for international patents for this idea of bacteria and applying them to AOBs and applying them to humans. And um, because he didn't have any more money, he then moved into his car um, and lived there for the next four and a half years while working on this idea. And he actually parked in the parking lot of his previous company and without asking permission, but they were, they were fine with it. Um, he was actually still consulting for them. And so he had an office there and he would go in every day and just study up on these bacteria. Well, he'd study up, but he became the experiment. Tell us about kind of his ritual oh, at God. night that he would do. <laughs> so he was trying to figure out how this bacteria produced by his own body could be beneficial. Right, he was, he was the first test subject. He stopped showering. <laughs> And he grew kind of a, he he grew these bacteria, and he had a concoction that he would um, he would douse himself with periodically in order to create a film of these ammonia oxidizing bacteria, which he thought would help with with all sorts of um, mental and physical um, health issues that he was dealing with, but also. Um, also eliminate the need to to bathe or use soap. And so he actually said that initially he started to smell a little bit and he just applied more of the bacteria and wore sweaters and started to sweat more and and through that process he stopped smelling and he says it had all sorts of good effects on him. Although he's careful to say that clinical trials still need to be done. Alright, and that's the interesting part. So that was a few years ago. Let's fast forward to where we are today. He started a company, he's raised about a hundred million dollars or maybe even a little bit more more. Tell us about the company and the investors and what they're hoping to do with his findings. So the company um, is called AOBiome, and um, they are doing six clinical trials. They're looking at um, the effects of these bacteria on everything from acne and rosacea to uh, hypertension, migraines, allergies, and they're um, you know hoping to go beyond that as well. They also have a cosmetic branch um, which sells <laughs> David Whitlock's bacteria spray, so everyone can use it. And in fact, they do now have tens of thousands of of uh, um, of people who buy this spray online, it's coming to Whole Foods. It's um, it's really becoming a topical. Live bacteria is becoming a real thing. Um, and interestingly, the company was also that cosmetic branch was sold last year to S. C. Johnson, who of course is the maker of many antibacterial products, including Drano and Raid, um, Windex, and, and and it's it's kind of a funny pairing. But in fact, there are a lot of companies known for creating antibacterial products that are now investing in the microbiome. You know, it's fascinating. You hear this and you're like, what? I'm going to rub bacteria on myself? No, thank you very much. But you go back in time, in history, and you cite this in your story. You talk about Cleopatra and some of kind of her rituals. You talk about what the Chinese have been doing uh, over centuries. Tell us a little bit about this so that as odd as this may seem, it hasn't been so odd in terms of history and finding some use in, in kind of good bacteria. So the idea is that we are actually composed largely of bacteria. We have as many bacterial cells as as human DNA cells, and um, and we need them. They they help us produce vitamins, neurotransmitters, all sorts of things. So it's it, it they are incredibly important for our health. That's Carolina Winter. So Gen Z are about to become the planet's biggest consumer spending force, and yet this group it is really more about saving what's in their wallets, and the frugality is happening around the globe. Business editor Jim Ellis to tell us why Gen Z is really different because everybody's like, what? It's just a younger generation. They'll end up doing everything the same. 
it's the cover story. It's a series of stories. Gen Z, though, really are different. They really are different. A lot of people have thought, well, you know, we've seen sort of these sort of demographic groups before. We talked a lot about boomers, about Gen X, about Gen Y, millennials. About millennials. And so everybody says, oh, this is just another. Well, it's different. There are a lot of them, first of all. This is going to be the largest demographic group since boomers. And, you know, the same way that boomers transformed the way that we sort of had commerce and shopped after yeah. World War II, we're probably going to see this group do the same. You know, by, you know, sort of the middle of next decade or maybe even sooner, this is going to be the largest consumer group. It's strange. There's so many of them. These are the children of Gen X, and they are coming ahead. And they, however, are different kinds of consumers because they have grown up in a world where mobile, where Internet shopping, where, you know, being able to talk back and forth to retailers and communicate and not just be on the receiving end of advertising. Right. You know, they've grown up with that, and well, they're going to shop differently. Before everybody moves away and starts Googling, I mean, we're talking about Gen Z. These are born around 1995 and after, right. correct? So they're basically in the age range of roughly seven, eight, up to about 22. Okay. Now, a lot of people say, well, isn't that too young to have a lot of consumption? The answer is no. <laughs> that anybody who has kids now or has had kids in recent years sort of recognizes that it's not the old days where mom goes out and sort of buys everything for a child up to the time that they leave home. It doesn't work that way. It's much more interactive. Yeah. Kids have a lot more say, and they demand different things from the products that they get. I want to get into that, but first I want to take a step back because this is also a generation that has grown up either seeing their parents have to deal with the financial crisis and the recession that followed. So they remember that and kind of the pain and maybe some of the downsizing that families had to do. Well, that's one of the differences between this group and millennials. Millennials who are sort of, you know, let's spend. And um, what's wrong with um, avocado toast? What's wrong with a $5 latte? Right. And this group, however, was at home during the financial crisis and sort of saw a lot of parents that have to sort of tighten their belts. And so they are actually much more concerned about spending and about value. And that's a, that's one of the big differences between this and millennials. The value is a watchword and how they define value is often differently. That that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's going to be the cheapest item, but it's going to be an item that either they think is um, using resources well or that's uh, you know going to last them longer. Right. It's a, a value play as opposed to a consumption play. This is not an 80s consumer where you know greed is good and we want a lot of stuff. Right. Consume, consume, consume. It's interesting. I was with a niece and she's just, I think, just past Gen Z, maybe by a year or two, but very much into, I shop in secondhand shops. That's where I go. Like, that's what they do. That's one of the big changes now that being able to, what they think of as recycle and repurpose yeah. clothing is a big deal. I mean, some people are saying that someday repurposed clothing is going to be as big as fast fashion. Now, I think that that's a really aggressive kind of projection, but there's nothing wrong with buying something that's been used before because in the mind of the Gen Z consumer, they're saying they're making the best use of resources, right. which is something that is, is part of this generation. This generation wants to do the right thing, as opposed to just talk about the right thing, which is much more millennial thing, but here, do the right thing. So what's, you know, let's reuse something or let's find materials that are you know underutilized and mm -hmm. incorporate them in something that I'm going to get. And what's interesting, and I thought from, from this series that you guys did this week, it's not that they're 
shunning necessarily luxury. But if they're going to do luxury, again, they're going to get used luxury or secondhand. Right. They're going to go to, you know. Well, 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 secondhand luxury is turning out to be a big deal for this group. I yeah. mean, they suddenly say, you know, why should I pay, you know, sort of $700 for this particular shirt when I can, you know, find it in a secondhand store in good in, in good condition and pay, you know, a tenth of that or less. And it is sort of hard to argue with that, but it's very different from the millennial thought that I need to have what's hot right now. Pristine, first as time As soon I'm as it's it. out because, yeah. and then after about a month or two and several people have seen it, then I have to switch on to the next garment. And this is not just a U.S. thing. This is a global thing, as I mentioned in the introduction. Um, and you're especially seeing it in Japan, which we know their economy has gone through how many different recessions. I right. mean, their younger generation, their Gen Z, is really kind the, of their Gen Z in, on this trend. It, it really is into this because you know they've seen six recessions in a 20 year period, right? And so therefore they are have, have have learned that you know things can be bad, and it sort of conditioned them to you know to want to save and not to be a, a, a particularly spending. You know, one of the things about them is that now Gen Z has become the most spendthrift group, demographic group in Japan. You normally think of younger people as spending you know, right. sort of more, more free spending than their elders. That's not the case in Japan. Part of it is that the job prospects um, they thought were not particularly good. It's turning out now that the job prospects are getting better for right. young people in Even Japan. Even as things are getting better in Japan, they're but still they, being they, frugal. They've gotten into the habit of not spending, and that is a real challenge for Japanese consumer brands. Well, all right. So as we said, it's a global thing. Another one, as I said, it's a series of stories that you guys are looking at, Gen Z, you talk about China specifically and kind of this new era of Chinese shopping. Tell us what's going on. I mean, China is is, is an interesting place simply because that's where a lot of this is happening first for a lot of reasons. I mean, one big reason is that China is the place where Gen Z has the highest or controls the highest percentage of of uh, disposable, a family household disposable income. Mm -hmm. There, hmm. Gen Zers uh, control about 15% of disposable income. That's a lot. It is a that lot. That compares to the U.S. where it's only 4%. And so therefore, you can't ignore the Gen Z shopper. Part of it is that because they had a one-child policy for so long, they ended up with a lot of money thrown at the single child ah, by parents and why. grandparents. And suddenly... Young people had lots of money to spend. The other thing is that Chinese youth save much less than youth in the rest of the world. And so, therefore, they have a lot of spendable income, and they are using it, and all sorts of businesses are trying to figure out ways to separate them from that cash. <laughs> well, and you guys include a ton of different companies. I'm not going to go through all of them. I don't know that I can pronounce all of them. But, of course, there's things like Alibaba, ByteDance, which we talked about in the magazine last week. But there's different things, like where you could be watching TV and you – you know, pull out your mobile phone and I don't know, there's yeah. a co QR code and then you go to that code and you get the link of something well, you saw on an actor, right? Like there's, the, the there's difference kind of is that, on. you know, unlike a lot of retailing in the West where e-tailing is the big thing, you go to a site like an Amazon and you find what you want and you say, oh, I'll shop there and then buy it. The ch difference in China is that social e-commerce has become the big thing. Social it's shopping. Social shopping. And basically, instead of going to a retail portal just to buy something, you interact with people in social media. And as buying opportunities are sort of slipped in, you know, you see a, a, an influencer who's using a particular makeup brand, there will be 
a button. There'll be something on the screen where you just push right there and you can buy what they're using. There are links in social media discussions about stars to the clothing that the stars are wearing or to a brand that the star particularly likes. The whole idea is that over there, hmm. they have pushed the social media into a real marketing opportunity. Obviously, we're seeing that now. We're seeing Instagram doing that here in the U.S., right. but not to the level that we're seeing over there. This year, we're going to see more than $400 billion in social shopping in China. That compares to about $6 billion here. That's I mean, unbelievable. It yeah. is amazing. And that has grown really fast. I mean, just in 2017, it was only less than $100 billion. So, I mean, this is growing like a weed over there. And that is the future in a place where you use your mobile device for everything. So, therefore, you're already connected. Right. And you already can do whatever as the whim hits you. Just push a button. Bye. Sounds dangerous. I would not want my teenager to have that. Um, there's another story that basically looks about cars and Detroit specifically who kind of turned their back on maybe what Gen Z was interested in and now may be paying the price for it. Well, Detroit said, well, where do we make all our money? Well, we make all our money on SUVs and light trucks. And so, therefore, let's let's go after that. Right. That's and what that's, people were buying. That's what people have been buying. And that's why we've seen a lot of uh, domestic automakers saying they wanted to get out of the sedan business, out of the regular car business, and particularly the small car business, because the people who bought small cars were sort of younger people who didn't have a lot of money and therefore wanted to start. The problem with abandoning that and going for the high profit sort of large vehicles is that you don't grab those consumers when they're young. That's number one. And often when people uh. shop for their next car, they include in that search the car that they already own or the brand they already own. So you're not grabbing people and taking them up. The other problem is that Gen Zers may shop differently longer mm -hmm. term, mm -hmm. that Gen Zers may not want that larger car simply because by the time they are old enough to need large cars, the autonomous vehicles right. will be here and the you know the connection that you have the brands may have been broken. So you may not see that group go into the traditional car buying cycle. That's Jim Ellis. As the planet warms, a researcher in Florida is exploring the limits of agricultural adaptation. In other words, how to breed heat-proof cows. For more on this story, I spoke with Bloomberg climate reporter Chris Flavelle. Chris, love this story. And we do have to remember that heat does affect agriculture. It affects cows, which is what you really focus on. Yeah, the thing that, that is important to note about agriculture is it's already an industry that is sort of prepared for extreme weather. Agriculture has to deal with extreme heat, too much water, not enough water. But when I talk to people in the industry, they say, what's happening with climate change is new because it's taking those extremes to even greater lengths. And so whatever part of agriculture you look at, they're worried about this. They're saying, how can we keep on producing whatever crops or livestock we produce at the same level? And one example that I looked at in this story is cattle. Everyone talks about the effect of cattle on climate change because, of course, cows produce methane, which leads to higher warming. Mm -hmm. uh, I looked at it the other way. What's the effect of higher warming on cattle? And producers are very worried about this. Scientists say that even slight increases in temperature and humidity can make it a lot harder for cows to stay healthy, to reproduce, to not get sick, to have high-quality meat. And so I talked to a researcher in Florida looking at whether you can do a, a more intelligent kind of crossbreeding to better protect cattle against heat 
with a catch without sacrificing the delicious sort of marbled quality of steak that we don't want to let go of. Right, and that's a good point. First of all, I had no idea that there was so much cattle in Florida. It's a really important part of the cattle industry, if you will. But you do make a point that there are cattle out there that are more heat resistant, but they maybe don't taste so good. Forgive me for going there. And then there are cattle that taste good, but they're not so heat resistant. So you've got to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, and it, you know what? This what we look at in the story could be a great example of how solutions through technology and science can help us deal with climate change. The hope with this project in Florida is, again, with the right sort of genetic expertise and crossbreeding, you can maintain the current supply of that sort of well-marbled steak even in the face of higher temperatures. Uh, but the question is, to what degree is that going to work? We don't right. know yet. But here's the big one. To what degree will other parts of agriculture have those same options? To what degree can we, can we protect crops, other kinds of livestock, basically our whole food supply from the effects of warming? And here's the big thing. To what degree is it going to cost us more money for the food we want? And that's, that's, I think, the scary part of this is we don't know yet what we'll have to sacrifice as consumers and what the industry will have to sacrifice in terms of convenience or cost or, or time to make this still available in the face of climate change. So Chris, this researcher in Florida that you spent some time with, I mean, what does she think um, about the future? I mean, we've learned so much about genetics, right? And just think about how far we've come in the last 10, 20 years, whether it's in healthcare medicines and so on. What does she think about the impact that could have positively on agriculture? So she's very optimistic. I spoke with Luca Matiescu. She's in Gainesville. She's, she's a, an excellent genetic researcher. And she's saying there's so much more we can do as the research gets better and as we know more um, about the effects of climate change and about sort of the specific makeup of any particular animal. So I think she's on the optimistic side here, saying we can still do a lot more to protect our food supply against the effects of climate change. Uh, but I also spoke with federal researchers who note that even as these challenges get more intense, federal funding is going down. Uh, and what private researchers told me is, there is there's not enough money and expertise in private industry to deal with these things. You need more federal support. So I think the big question, or one of the big questions is, will that level of research and support be high enough to maintain the sort of constant level of technological progress as this problem gets worse? And that's sort of, that's, I think, the, the nub of the conflict here. Are we willing to pay as much as taxpayers as it takes to protect our food supply? And for the moment, Believe it or not, that amount of federal research money is, seems to be going down right. rather than up. Right. You talk about staff reductions at the Agricultural Department and requests for further budget reductions. The point is in your story that when we look at agriculture, maybe we're not at a crisis yet as a result of climate change, but we're moving rapidly there. Um, and that's the concern at this point. So we've got to figure out some solutions. Yeah. The, the one thing that everyone I spoke with for this story agreed on was we know what direction this is going. It's getting worse, whether it's higher temperatures, more CO2 in the air, which makes crops less nutritious, uh, more rainfall, less rainfall when you want rainfall. So all the trends are negative. And the, really the question is not, can we maintain a level of food supply that we have today, but to what degree can we protect that in the future as things get more extreme? Uh, and also, it, what, what does protecting it mean, right? Can we maintain the incredible variety of pretty affordable food that we enjoy today in this country? Uh, or will that start to get A, more expensive, or B, in some cases, 
unavailable. That's Christopher Flavel. So once fawned over, revered, synonymous with the celebrity chef world, maybe even the leader of that world, his restaurants too, once the place to be seen. We're talking, of course, about Mario Batali. This features story from the fun and fabulous duo of Kate Crater and Devin Leonard, Fans of both. How come you two both had to work on this story? Or how did you come together? I would say that Devin is such a fantastic writer and researcher. So he managed, like, I can I can walk around and talk about Babo in the glory days um, all day long because it was that it was that great. She was there. I was there. She was exactly. There. Well, take us back to Babo in the heyday. It was it was really the epicenter of the world. It was the coolest place to be and it was the time when like Balthazar had opened and so at first everybody was like you want to go to this French brasserie where all the models are and then Mario Batali and his partner Joe Bastianich made Babo the coolest place in town. You know, it was where you would see Madonna in a corner, like literally she would be sitting there in a corner in dress, like a white dress looking looking magnificent and you never knew Bill Clinton would walk in. Right. It was it really was like a power scene that New York knows how to do power scenes and it was the epitome of a power scene. And I feel like Patali was like the celebrity chef before there were so many celebrity chefs. Is that fair? Yes, no. He came up at exactly the right moment. He sort of came up in the early 90s right when the Food Network was taking off yeah. and they used each other really well. He was a star on the Food Network who talked to people in an intelligent way. He taught them to make pasta instead of, you know, the boring sort of like put your pasta in a pan. He wanted to teach people about different regions of Italy and he became a star and he had also fantastic instincts for making Italian food sexy and fun. All right. So he and Joe Bastianich, right, they opened up a bunch of restaurants and really became such a strong and really forceful pair, right, Mm -hmm. in the restaurant industry. That was then. Then come fast forward, Me Too, and that impacts Mario Batali. Hashtag, yeah, the Me Too um, movement really changed everything. And it was like someone turned on the lights at the club. So everything that was great and fun at Babo and behavior that might have gone up, gone on in like an upstairs dining room or something like that, all of a sudden became things that you would talk about on 60 Minutes and file police investigations on. It was um, it was a scene that when you put the spotlight on it, there was a lot going on. Well, and I feel like the Mara Batali story was like one we've seen in many other industries, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. the media industry, um, if you will, where people were known for kind of having a history or doing certain things. It just wasn't made public. And then all of a sudden it was made public. And that changed things. Right. No, exactly. And I think that's where Devin's um, fantastic reporting skills came in. Well, no, but you just go back and read sort of articles. You read sort of Bill Buford's, you know, book, Heat. There's just all sorts of clues and, and, and just the way he behaves towards women, Batali, that is, you know, in the, the you, know, you know, in the book, whether he's, you know, he's on he's on TV or, or, or he's out drinking and, and all that stuff. I mean, I mean, if you read that, read that book now with knowing what, what we know now, you know, you know, it's, it's kind of it's sort of it's sort of it's, it's, it's all there. It was it was just, you know, it was just it was just he wasn't just verbally harassing people. He was groping people. Right. How come? I mean, it was pretty egregious, like to read some of the stuff that you guys have in your story. Well, it's, yeah, it's not, I mean, that's 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 been, been out there. But yeah, I mean, that, that, that that's what that's why he was forced out of his restaurants. 
What? Well, I, you know, and I do wonder, you know, Kate, you know this industry really well. I mm-hmm. mean, why was it that it was fairly known or well known, right? That kind of how he was, but it didn't become public or didn't become a, pub, a problem before this? I mean, it's a really good question. I think it was behavior that people tolerated, you know, it was sort of an open secret. But, you know, this was at a time when restaurants were the coolest place to be. Right. And the price of entry might be to sit next to Mario Batali and have him put his hand on your knee. You know, I think that it was also the kind of thing, though, where you could get to work away. Right. People wanted to work with him. I mean, restaurants, everything has changed so much. It's hard to overstate how much the restaurant mentality has changed and the kitchen mentality has changed now. What was tolerated even just like three years ago is absolutely forbidden now. And but kitchens have always been like a high energy place with a lot of testosterone, a lot of heat. Mm -hmm. And I think that behavior would go on that people just in some cases said, you know, it was part of a day's work and you, you know, you would, you could like slap somebody or push them away. Right. And then sometimes you couldn't. And so Mario Batali certainly started crossing that line more and more. I mean, it was devastating. I mean, it really has changed. I mean, Batali went from being kind of at the height, right, of this industry to being at the bottom. He was the epitome of a celebrity chef. I mean, he really, he really was like one of those familiar faces. You, he didn't even necessarily need a last name, you know. Well, talk to us too about the story, which is fascinating. And let's go back to the partnership between Mario Batali and Joe Bastianich right? Several restaurants, different states, Italy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Batali had um, some ownership in that. So now... Bastianich is buying into that business, right? Or buying him out, correct? Right. Or or so we think. So we think. No, I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, well, I mean, what we, we, we know what they've said and what, what they've said is that Basically, Tanya, you know, Bastianis Manuali, Joe's sister, Lydia yeah. Bastianis's, uh, you know, daughter, that she's stepping in to, you know, you know, basically to, Mar- to you know, to Mario's sort of ownership role. So, so she and Joe are, are you know, are going to, are going to, you know, basically have the majority position in all the restaurants, and they're going, they're going to be running them. So but- that's, so that's what they said, uh, you know, on, on March six, and that, and that was like Mario's out, we're, we're bu- buying him out. You know he's done. He's not going to profit from the restaurants a- a- anymore. So and so when we're moving on, they're moving on, right? Because what happened was nobody wanted to be affiliated, right? Customers didn't want to go to those restaurants. So we're corporate clients. You know, places like Del Posto and all that. Yeah. And as a result of this change, I mean, people are coming back to those restaurants. Mm-hmm. It's this. No, I think that they really um, in December 2017, when the allegations became public, it. I think the effect was immediate, and people really stopped going to those restaurants. And um, in the story, Devin reported that um, at Odo, which is right in mm-hmm. NYU, and uh, you know, in the middle of yeah. NYU, was sort of like blacklisted by informed students or by the school. Well, and that's like, what Joe said. It felt like it felt like we've been blacklisted, like a, and we, you know, the, you know, the students weren't coming in. So right. Well, what's interesting too is you get into it's not so easy, um, kind of disconnecting from one another because you talk about in terms of the businesses, right? They bought the real estate. There's a there was a lot involved. Right, and, and and I mean, and there's multiple. All these restaurants are owned by separate LLCs. Right, they they all have sort of diff, you know di- different partners. It's not just you know Mario and Joe. So to to, to, to untangle all that stuff and the real estate they owned and all that stuff. So so that that took a while, and 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 also you know, and then then you have to think about. The, you know the different motives. You know the parties. You know, obviously Joe and you know and Tanya would want to, 
you know, you know, get Mario out as quickly as he as he could. But maybe Mario's would be like, well, you know, I'm in no hurry. You, you know, you know, I want a big number. So I mean, it, it it took you know something like 18 months. That's Devin Leonard and Kate Crater. Well, this week marked the start of the Tribeca Film Festival, its 18th year in Lower Manhattan. Robert De Niro and Jane Rosenthal started all after 9/11 to help revitalize downtown New York. I caught up with the two co-founders for some of the highlights of this year's festival. So your 18th year. Crazy, right? Congratulations. Thank you. So I'm curious, um, it's just progressed so much, and there's so many different moving parts to it. What are you looking forward to this year? And what do you hope when people go, whether it's a talk, whether it's a movie, whether it's um, one of the AR events, what do you hope they walk away with? Being entertained, be, you know, laughing, laughing, crying, being entertained, having a good time, you know, sparking a conversation, seeing something that you wouldn't normally see through the eyes of the Tribeca curators. The one thing, there's so much to see in this, you know, in this crazy, you know, landscape right now. Yeah. And the one thing that we're able to do at Tribeca with our extraordinary programmers is curate it for you. So you know you'll have the Tribeca stamp of approval no matter what you're watching, whether it's new online work or... What does that mean, the Tribeca, like, stamp of approval? How would you it define means that? that our, I would define it that our, our programmers have um, combed the globe, literally, yeah. and gone through over 8,000 submissions to, to pick what is they believe are the voices to look forward to as well as the voices to look back at. So whether you have a film, you've got, you've had Damien Chazelle came out of this festival, Ryan Coogler came out of this festival, and then you have, you're looking back at uh, the work of Francis Ford Coppola and mm -hmm. a new, and he doesn't stop. He is still working on Apocalypse Now. So now you have a remastered yeah. in Dolby Atmos, watching Apocalypse, then having Francis come out and talk to Steven Soderbergh, who is such a um, you know, just technically forward thinker in in film, uh, and the two of them sitting down to have a talk. So a part of cool Tribeca is always about expecting the unexpected. Well, the unexpected, I don't know if it's unexpected, you're going to be sitting down with Marty Scorsese. Yes. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I, I don't know what's going to What's it like happen. when you two sit down? <laughs> Um, we're going to sit, I mean, I, I, we're trying to sort of figure it out now whether we should have a form, a structure, a format, and I said, we will. Um, but we're going to have the nine films we've done, pieces of them, or, uh, and then we'll talk about them. And then I'll just ask Marty a question, he'll go on for 15 <laughs> minutes. And, but, then we'll be done. <laughs> yeah, but, and, and be great. And, and uh, but, um, I guess I'm thinking that we'll have, we'll talk hopefully about things that maybe we normally wouldn't talk about. Maybe I'd have a question about a scene we did that people inadvertently would be interested in since you're bringing it up. Right. Uh, some, I, I don't know. I've got to think about that and look at the, look at the scenes that are going to be presented so we can, I can formulate There's, some questions. I was thinking about last year. You guys closed with The Fourth Estate, that documentary on the Times coverage yeah. of Donald Trump's campaign and then his first year as president. This year, it's Danny Boyle's um, yesterday, very different feel. Is there a different tone to the festival this year, would you say? Or I, I'm always curious about how you think about opening with the Apollo, like how you think about the opens and closes. Well, this year, um, the 
there's so much music in the yeah, festival. We great. have so many. We have uh, uh, Trey Atanasio uh, documentary. We have a documentary on um, other music uh, that was uh, just an amazing record store. Um, uh, Linda Ronstadt and right. Cheryl Crow is going to play afterwards. And the Danny's film is about a musician who realizes he's the only person who can remember Beatles songs. So it was a nice a nice tie-in. In between we have other films that uh, are uh, you know equally political and um, certainly questioning a lot of things that are going on in in our country and and around the world. I'm curious what you folks think about the streaming world, because Apple made a big announcement about moving into it, Netflix, Amazon. How does it kind of impact what movies are made, how they're made, and what constitutes success. I'm just curious what you think about that. Like Netflix? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, listen, uh, they love movies and they're doing a lot. And I don't know what, uh, we uh, did The Irishman. We had a lot of trouble getting it started with a lot of people wanting to put money in at the end of the day, can't put it in, or this or that, or I want this, I want that. It's such a headache. Doing a movie in general is like that. Yeah. Getting the money, raising the fire. Still, the it's money. hard to Still, yeah. And they came in, and it was a very ambitious uh, project that we had been working on for years, and they just let us do it. And that is uh, very important. The format, how it's presented, they know that we have to present it in a certain way. Uh, they have their way later on, but we have a way, and we're working that out. But to, we were quite fortunate to, to, uh, to, to have uh, Netflix, Netflix right. come into it. And that's our conversation with Jane Rosenthal and Robert De Niro. So we're here with the editor of Pursuits, Chris Rouser. And Chris, the opener this week is about the new math when it comes to private jets. Yes. Meaning when it comes what? to using private oh, jets, okay. which you and I are very busy doing. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, this actually, this idea came from Joel Weber, the editor-in-chief uh, of uh, Business Week. And he came by my desk one day and he was like, you know, the new thing with private jets is that you can't just have one private jet option. You need to have like a whole quiver of options. And I was like... Yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. That makes sense. <laughs> so what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but it's true, actually, because uh, a lot of different things have changed in the math of private jets over the past few years. So insurance prices have gone up. Um, it's harder to find pilots. There's a little bit of a pilot shortage. You mean with outright ownership? With using private, like, yeah. like passengers, people yeah, yeah. who use private jets. Um, and uh, there's more than there have ever been. Um, so it doesn't necessarily make sense to own your own jet anymore. And there's all these different options that you can have a jet card. You can do fractional ownership. You can charter. You can fly on empty legs, which is when you, um, you know, when a jet's flying back from somewhere, you can just kind of hop on it when it's empty and come back. That's really cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. And that can actually end up being quite cheap. So yeah. we talked to this guy, uh, Brendan McMillan, who works at a place called QP Family Offices. And what he does for his clients is he takes, he talks to them and gets all the information about what they need, where they go, what their family requirements are, what their history of travel is, and what their flexibility and cost requirements are and then he actually created an algorithm that spits out basically what you know what the combo of what you should have is so like should you have a uh, like a jet card should you have you know charter options at your disposal should you look into fractional ownership and at the end of the day like should you buy a whole jet? It's fascinating, right? Because this is a guy who's working with family wealth, right? So they, mm -hmm. he creates a portfolio of investments, and he's also doing kind of a portfolio for private aviation. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's it's what um, 
you know, what the best combination is for you. It's not just the one choice. I have to say what's really cool about what you folks did is you, you know, broke it down in, in pursuits and you did the pros and cons of fractional ownership of jet cards, of empty legs, of shared flights. It's really useful. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, if you're someone, if you're in that high echelon of people <laughs> who's using this stuff and, you know, there's also, we should say. This isn't just about collecting miles. <laughs> well, it is. This isn't great for your carbon footprint. You know, like no. owning a private jet is is very carbon expensive. Um, and some of these things actually compromise on that and make it a little bit better. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a, a private jet, a, a new G5 can cost 60 million dollars that's a ton of money and that that goes very far that jet right but you know maybe not even when it comes to buying a jet you might want something that is shorter like as a go shorter distances because there's no sense in tying up 60 million dollars in a plane if you don't have to tell me about it um <laughs> no, but what's interesting too is you talked about this if you do own a plane there's an faa upgrade that's coming that's apparently going to be very expensive so like you have to think you mentioned insurance and some other yeah. things there mm-hmm. are th- it's expensive to own a plane. <laughs> it is, yeah. And this, this upgrade, um, it's coming up in 2020. The ADSB, it's kind of a tracking system, um, and every, all planes that are out there that are in this industry have to comply with the new regulations. So that you know, that's a little thing that's affecting things too. I love the thing, and just one more before we move on. But there's it was a Delta private jets have this sky access, and you pay like one amount. I think it was like eighty five hundred dollars for mm-hmm. the year, and you have unlimited empty leg flights. I mean, you got to kind of do it last minute, right? But that's kind of pretty cool. Yeah, that is one of the um, the one of the people we talked to in the story was like, "There's been a democratization of, of private jets." Wait, wait, so let's put like, that in. Uh, well, yeah, well, <laughs> let's but put I that actually, in quotation marks. Yeah, this Delta um, private jets program is uh, it actually. You know, it's a year-long membership, and it starts at $8,000. Um, and that actually, if you fly a lot of times, and it is unlimited, that can get your flights down to lower than coach. Right. Actually. A couple of first-class flights, uh, yeah. a few thousand dollars, and you can cover it. Okay. So, um, we gave you some advice on private jets, different ways to do it. Now, we have some advice on getting parental advice. And there's a new book to help you with that. Yeah. Of so course, th- there is. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this book is really fabulous. Um, the Business Week writer, Carolina Winter, um, wrote a story for us about Crib Sheet. The full title of this uh, is Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. I'm just stressed out over that. Yeah, I know. It sounds very dataful. And actually, it is. It's this book that basically goes through all these studies and doesn't look at conventional wisdom, doesn't really look at sort of moralistic parenting. And it's just like, okay, what does the data tell us about all these choices that we have to make uh, after our child is born through like the first couple of years of life? Uh, And Carolina is a new mom. And Mm -hmm. so she is currently struggling with uh, sleep training. And so she writes about how it's, you know, obviously it's so traumatic to hear your child crying. Yeah. Um, it's and, hard. And, she, you know, she was calling her friends and saying, you know, do I really have to do this? Oh, this seems like this is traumatic. Um, and the data shows that it's not, it, that it actually, it, it doesn't traumatize children and actually kids get better sleep at the end of the day. Um, and this is one of those things where like, it can seem so confusing when you're making these choices on your own. Right. And, and then you can read a book that sort of can be scolded or can sort of seem like it's yeah. like someone lecturing you from on high. You're going to mark this, them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and this book is just like, look, we are not making any judgments here. We're just, look, here's what all the studies tell you. And uh, she found it to be very soothing and have some really useful information. There was one thing, I think you talked about the baby Einstein videos about plopping your kid in front yes. of them and the research on that. The research says <laughs> that babies don't learn anything from educational videos. <laughs> so don't do it. <laughs> so it's not worth it. But, you know, the one thing that they said that does have an effect on uh, babies learning is if your child, if your parents read to you. Yeah. So yeah. simple, right? Right. She did, but she was so like kind of no nonsense about some things like vaccines. She was like, 
just get them. Yeah, that's and one that's of the been ca- such a big right. Topic yeah, that's for one debate. of the cases where the author really takes a firm stand, and she's like, the data very clearly says that you should vaccinate vaccinate your children. All right, so it is springtime. I have no good segue here. Uh, picnics, <laughs> eating outdoors. I have to say, it just feels so good that the weather, certainly here on the uh, East Coast, yes. is getting warmer. It's sandwich time. It is sandwich time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we uh, do this series at Pursuits where we talk to different chefs, different top chefs in different cities, and we get them to recommend their favorite places to eat. Um, and they're not allowed to recommend their own place. So, you uh, know, we've done the best pasta in Rome, the best pastries in Paris. And it's like, New where York, would they go to eat, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Where chefs go when they're free. And then, uh, so of course we thought New York springtime sandwiches. And so we got a bunch of different chefs to recommend some really delicious looking sandwiches, some of which I've had, some of which I've not. Is there a favorite here or one that you've tried that you really love? So the new trend kind of in New York with sandwiches are these Japanese style sandos. Hmm. And there's this place called High Collar in the East Village, which serves, um, it's like a breaded pork cutlet thinly sliced on a sandwich. And it looks to me so delicious. So right. I'm definitely These are hearty that. sandwiches. Yes. They're the kind of sandwiches that f- like fall apart in your hand. <laughs> Most of them are kind of like big beefy ones, which isn't always my favorite. But Kate Crater, the writer, is a foodie and she's like people love it when sandwiches fall apart um, I have to say, I was so happy to see Katz's Deli, Pastrami and Rye. Love Pastrami and Rye. Yeah, and that's recommended by Thomas Keller, who is one of the greatest chefs on planet Earth. So, you know, you've got to trust him. We've also got, um, there's a Bang Bar, which is a new Momofuku place mm-hmm. in um, Columbus Circle. And they got these these sort of wrap sandwiches. And the, the, the U with spicy pork is the one that um, they recommend there. And it looks, that also looks incredibly delicious. Definitely messy. Bring lots of napkins, I'm just going to say. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, all right. So let's uh, talk about about great bookends. Those were great sandwiches. Let's talk about great bookends. I was thinking this is kind of a good idea if you have to do like a wedding present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, they, you know, bookends are not something, how many stacks of books do people have around their house? Tons. It's not something you necessarily think about, but it is something that can make your library, uh, your library, if you have a library, uh, you know, any, any <laughs> you room have a in private your house jet, you have a library. Where, where you've got books uh, look a little better. So we went through and we got all these different places to send us fabulous bookends that's just kind of like have a really great look to them. And one of them is um, this very cool company actually takes detritus from the Whitney Museum in New York. I like love this t-shirts idea. T-shirts or brochures or those pins. Yeah. And they cast them in resin and then they create all these different unique bookends, which They're I thought gorgeous. was very cool. Yeah. $400 a pair. But you've right. also got cast iron. You've got uh, marble. Yeah, a little bit of everything. My favorite one is, I think, this uh, portal glass one by this artist, Andrew Hughes, which is, it's $1,100 a pair. So it's not cheap for a bookend, but it's very pretty looking. All right. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Note <laughs> to self. Yeah. Um, really really, really, really cool stuff. Uh, let's also talk about something that's kind of cool. Um, for all you fly fishers out there, you take your private jet. Yep. Uh, and you t- go somewhere and you go fly fishing. You take a sandwich. Take a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll weave it all together. The professional waiting boot, courtesy of Orvis. Yes, Orvis. We love Orvis. Uh, we feature them a lot. And, mm. you know, the writer, Kyle Stock, is a big fisher fisherman. And he, we, I, I, I told him, let's do a story about waiters. And he was like, you know what uh, we should actually do is we should do waiting boots. And so, because he loves these Orvis Pro boots, they're $230. They actually worked with Michelin to work on the tread on the on the bottom of the, the boot. That is nuts. Isn't that crazy? You're talking about the tire guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so this is for when you're hiking out to find 
find a place to find, you know, a spot in the river where no one else is. You're going to trek through mud. You're going to trek through water. These are very light and they keep your feet very dry. Well, and what's interesting, and I didn't even think about this, they're breathable, breathable, which is a good thing, but stickier. They talk about so that yeah. it doesn't matter what you're, what kind of terrain or if you're in the water, you're not going to fall. Yeah. Well, you know, so I'm a Mainer and I love bean boots, but bean yeah. boots actually can be very slippery. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> Which fish, is amazing, right? Which is you amazing. You would think that yeah. they would have that uh, down. And sometimes fishing uh, boots actually have felt on the bottom huh. um, so that, you know, so that they stick better and that they make less noise underwater, yeah. apparently, so the fish can't hear you. Um, and these, these are just got a great tread to them. All right. So these go for, what, $230 roughly. Yeah. Um, what's the competition out there? So um, the there's a few different products. Um, and the Sims Fishing products, uh, they make this one called the G3 Boot, which is which is very popular. And actually, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of one of the, the hot ones. And then there's one from Corkers, which is also very cool. And I think one that a lot of people use. But why the Orvis? Like, this is a brand that's been around for a while. You know, Because you guys sometimes, like, really find, like, something out there, and you're like, this is the one to go for. But Orvis is a really well-known, established brand. Yeah, and, you know, we featured their H8, uh, Helios 8 uh, fly rod a couple years ago, because sometimes the old companies, which can be very old school, are the ones doing the best work. Yeah. And, you know, Orvis is an incredible following. And so, when, and, when, and this is a new product. So when they make a new product that's, like, worthy of attention, we will always want to highlight it. That's Bloomberg Pursuits editor Chris Rouser. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, well, do check out our daily podcast for the ride home at iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. And, of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That's on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.